Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved. I pray that God's peace and grace may be multiplied to you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Do you remember that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? It's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you might become partakers of the the divine nature. That is to become more like Jesus himself. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world due to sinful desires. You remember that we read last week. It's for this very reason that we ought to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are ours and are increasing, they keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together as we read 2 Peter, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more fully confirmed, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction, And many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaken the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who love gained from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are wireless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after, having, uh, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded of your word which says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build labor in vain. This church is your body. I pray that you would build it even this morning. I pray that you would grant that we might put away, even as we approach your word, that we, we might put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word 
which is able to save our souls. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So if you look in the back of your handout there, I believe there are some notes. There's a lot of scripture that we're going to be going through this morning. And we're not going to cover it all in depth um, as we might. But I believe by God's grace to us that we will uh, uncover what he has for us this morning in the full scope of those verses that we read. Do you remember how Satan disguised himself as a serpent and tempted Adam and Eve? You can read about that in Genesis 3. And do you remember what he said? He said to the man and the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did you hear that? Did God actually say, What was Satan trying to do? Was he not trying to place a seed or plant a seed of doubt in the minds and even the hearts of Adam and Eve? Was he not trying to question God's goodness, his truthfulness? And how did Adam and Eve respond? They engaged in the conversation. They allowed Satan to continue to plant the doubts about the goodness and truthfulness of God until we read in verse 6 of chapter 3 of Genesis, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The man and the woman had allowed Satan to cause them to doubt and then to disregard God's word in pursuit of an immediate pleasure. Is this not the same temptation that we face today? Do we not still hear Satan's voice causing us to question God's word, causing us to question God's goodness. Does Satan still use the allure of the world to entice us? What do we read in 1 John 2.16? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is what the world offers us. It's all it can offer us, that which we can touch and see. But the Apostle John continues and says, All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And while we expect Satan to tempt us, the world to tempt us, what if that enticement, what if that temptation to doubt God's word came from within the church? What if there were those who spoke the language of Christianity, who participated in the church community, and they were the ones that were tempting you? They were the ones causing you to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. These verses that we're going to study this morning are ones that we'd probably rather avoid talking about. There's a lot of language in there and ideas that aren't pleasant to address. And yet we need to. It's necessary. It is God's word. And there is a danger to avoiding talking about this. This danger that Peter's sheep were facing, did God actually say these things, are the same dangers that we face today. And that's why we need to hear God's word. 
That's why we need to be reminded of what God tells us through it, because we stray like sheep. We are prone to forget the voice of our shepherd and instead follow the false shepherds of this world. But God's word is the means, that is the way in which God brings his straying sheep back to green pastures, back to still waters, back to paths of righteousness. We hear our shepherd's voice spoken in his word, and we follow him. So even this morning, let us heed Peter's words as he stirs up our sincere minds by way of reminder. If you turn to your outline, we'll see what things that Peter was asking us to remember. The first point in your outline that we should remember is that there will be false teachers. There will be false teachers. Isn't that what we read back in chapter 2, verse 1? But false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. So Peter there is appealing to the Old Testament prophecy and saying just as there were, in fact, you can read about it, false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you. And where will these teachers be? Well, we can see there in our next blank, they're going to be in the church. What do we read if we look at the references that we have there, chapter 2, verse 1, where we're at right now? Peter says, just as there will be false teachers among you. If we go ahead to chapter 2, verse 13, we read there, they, these false teachers, are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. These feasts, these meals, were likely meals that preceded the Lord's Supper. And we know that meals and eating together is something of a social, if not religious, um, significance. They're sharing life together. These false teachers are in and among the people. You might be remembered what we read in Acts 20. And uh, actually verses 28 and 30. I have 29 and 30, but 28 and 30. There the Apostle Paul was speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he reminds these elders as he's about to depart from them, never to see them again, pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29 of Acts 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So at a minimum, what Paul was saying there in Acts 20 was there would be these fierce wolves that would arise among the people. And it may be such, since he was speaking to the elders, that the, uh, these false prophets, these fierce wolves, would come from the group of elders themselves, speaking these twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So one thing we must acknowledge is that there will be false teachers in the church. These false teachers in the church, and secondly, these are ones who look like Christians. That's our second point there, below one. They look like Christians. Again, back to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. What do we read there? Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
We can go down a few verses to chapter 2, verse 20. We read there, For if after they escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So we read that they call Jesus Master. There's this language of buying them. They have escaped through a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can read in verse 21, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. So they have somehow known this way of righteousness, and after knowing it, turned back from the holy commandments delivered to them. So these are ones who knew the way of righteousness. These are ones who have had the holy commandment delivered to them. They look like Christians. They're in the church. They look like Christians. Thirdly, but in their teaching, they deny the following things. They deny the following things. Now, much of what they deny is implicit or implied by what Peter, how Peter responds here, but some of it is explicit. For example, what do they deny? The first is the parousia. That's in uh, chapter 3, verse 4. This is the Greek word for being present. But in the New Testament, this had become virtually synonymous with the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see a form of that word both in chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 1, verse 16. At the core of their teaching, the false teachers denied that Jesus would return. There had been expectation that Jesus would return soon. And these first generation of Christians were dying. In fact, we read that at the beginning of 2 Peter, that Peter himself was expecting his death to be soon. And Jesus hadn't come back yet. So what these false teachers claim is, the apostles invented this idea of Jesus returning. It was a myth to keep people in line, to keep them behaving morally. But the scriptures don't really teach that Jesus was returning. That is at the core of what these false teachers were showing the people. And because he isn't returning... They also deny the judgment. This we get from chapter 2, beginning in verse 3 and going uh, down to verse 10. It's not stated here, but by how Peter is writing this, he is making implicit that despite what the uh, the readers may have been taught, there will be a judgment. He's appealing to the Old Testament examples of God throughout history judging angels. Um, in the flood, judging humanity, Sodom and Gomorrah. So there will be a day of judgment. But these false teachers, although, because they deny, rather, the parousia, because they deny the judgment, they also deny the need for godliness. Because if you're not going to be judged for how you live, there's no need to live in a particular ethical way. That's our next point there, and we see many references to that. So, you don't need to be godly. For example, in chapter 2, verse 2, we read there that many will follow in their sensuality. What is this sensuality? What is that talking about? That's a lack of constraint. constraint. That's immoral behavior. It most often refers to sexual sin. In chapter 2, verse 10, 
We read that they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Chapter 2, verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They have hearts trained, trained in greed. Chapter 2, verse 19. They are slaves of corruption. And here we see in chapter th- uh, 3, verse 3, their motivation is because of their sinful desires. And that's why there's corruption in the world to begin with. Now, what's interesting to, to think about here is, wouldn't their behavior be so obvious and so anti-Christian and so out of place that those within the church would be able to identify that? Isn't that what we would think? I would know a false Christian if I saw one. Isn't that the confidence that we have and who we know who are Christ and those who are not? But what do we read in chapter 2, verse 1? We read, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then perhaps we're reminded that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You can find this reference in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. There the Apostle Paul writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And this is something for us to ponder for even a moment here. That sin does not present itself as this monster of nightmares. Sin presents itself as something appealing and benign and friendly and attractive. These false teachers speak loud boasts. That is, we see that in chapter 2, verse 18. It sounds like they know what they're talking about. They're confident in what they're saying. They're promising freedom. We read that in chapter 2, verse 19. They promise freedom, yet they are perverting the grace of God. So how is it that these false teachers are justifying their teaching? How is it that they can come in and deceive the people of God. In our second point, we see that the false teachers, first of all, despise all authority but their own. That is a characteristic of these false teachers. We get that from chapter 2, verse 10. There we read, Uh, Beginning in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The authority there is most likely referring to Jesus Christ. They despise his authority. They don't want to be under his authority. And that's seen in that immediate context because as we continue to read there in verse 10, they are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are these glorious ones? It's been debated. It could be um, leaders within the church. It could be the, the civil authorities, but most likely it's angels. So they're blaspheming the glorious one, these angels. Whereas angels, these righteous angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So these glorious ones in verse 10 are fallen angels. And these false teachers evidently are saying, They're blaspheming them. They're speaking in a way that even angels would not speak against them. 
So they are despising authority. And isn't that at the heart of all, if not many, if not all, false teaching? We read something, we hear it, we understand it, and we say, no, I'm not going to submit to that. This is what it says. I will not submit to that. I know better. That's where these false teachers were. They had a wisdom that they thought was above God's wisdom. How else do these false teachers undermine God's teaching? Well, they rejected the apostles' teaching. We read that next. They reject the apostles' teaching. For that, we have to go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. So while it doesn't say it here explicitly, it is implied by how Peter responds to them. He has just finished exhorting his sheep to remember the qualities of the fruitful, growing Christian that they know and have been established in. He has summarized all the ethics that he's taught them, how they need to live, the qualities of a Christian. He says, and I will make every effort so after my departure you will be able to at any time recall these things. And then we get to verse 16, 4. This four is very important. It's explaining why they should trust what he has just taught them. So what do we read there in verse 16? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we, when he received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So what is Peter talking about here when he speaks about the coming, or rather the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is the parousia. This is the coming of Jesus at the end of the age. When Jesus returns, it will not be in the anonymity of the nativity, but he will come in power for all to see. What Peter is saying here is that the apostles didn't invent this idea that Christ was going to return in power. They had, in fact, seen it. When had they seen it? Well, what he's referring to here, this, this uh, account, is actually, we can read it in a few places in the Gospels, but we can go back to Mark 9. So if you'll turn with me there to Mark 9, actually Mark 8, beginning in verse 38. We read there, Jesus speaking in verse 30, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the angels. Chapter 9, verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there is the glory, there's the power. We continue on to verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. What Peter is saying is that the transfiguration of Christ was a prelude or anticipation of his return in glory. The false teachers in three, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verses 3 and 4, said this teaching wasn't reliable. Peter responds by asserting that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They had um, actually seen what it will be like when he returns. And in fact, this experience that the apostles had confirms what the Old Testament prophesied about him. For here we see that the false teachers also rejected the Old Testament prophecies. So we see that the false teachers despise all authority but their own. They reject the apostles' teaching, and they also reject the Old Testament prophecies. That's what we read in verses 19 and 21 back in 2 Peter chapter 2, or rather chapter 1. We read there, and we have something more fully confirmed, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying here is you can trust the apostles. You can trust their authoritative interpretation of what the Scriptures taught themselves taught. This next part gets a little bit complicated, so... I want to take it verse by verse and explain some things here so that we can fully understand what's happening. We read in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. <clears throat> some translations have different words that are more fully confirmed. They might have something uh, as something more completely reliable, something more sure, something confirmed, something made more sure. Some uh, lean toward the translation that the prophetic word is made more sure or is, rather is more sure than the experience than the apostles had on the Mount of Transfiguration. So let me say that again. Some think what this means here in verse 19 is that the prophetic word is more sure than the experience that the apostles had. According to this interpretation, Peter is saying, we had these experiences, which is good for us, but you have something even more sure than that. You have God's word. God's word is more sure than our experience. To which I'd say, yes, God's word is more fully reliable than our experiences. Our subjective experiences, our emotions which ebb and flow. In fact, we're reminded in James that the word of God is like a mirror that shows us how we truly are, what we truly look like. And so we trust God's word to interpret our subjective experiences. I would agree with that, but I don't think that's what Peter is saying here. He stated in verse 16 that the apostles were not following cleverly devised myths when they made known to you the power and coming of Jesus. They saw his majesty. They were eyewitnesses to the foretaste of his majesty. You can trust what the apostles are saying because of their objective experience. This really, in fact, happened. In fact, it would undermine his argument completely if he said, we had this experience of the Mount of Transfiguration, but that wasn't by itself a sure foundation. He is not pitting 
Scripture against his experience. Instead, what I think he's saying here is that the apostles' experience actually confirms or makes more sure what we find in Scripture. Scripture itself is already sure, and our experiences as apostles have now made it more sure. It's this word, he says there in verse 19, to which you do well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place. And I would say this is his main message to this point. Something that the false teachers have forgotten. They have forgotten to pay attention to the prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dark place. This day he refers to here is generally agreed to be the day of Christ's return. The day dawns objectively for all to see. It also dawns subjectively in your hearts, the hearts of those who have eagerly waited for Christ's return. The morning star rises Probably what's in mind here, what's seen here is that, or what's meant here rather, is that this lamp illuminates the dark. God's word illuminates the dark. This prophetic word illuminates the dark until what these Old Testament prophecies, what they point to, actually becomes a reality and are fulfilled. And then what they point to is actually seen. Peter continues to further support the full reliability of scriptures in verses 20 and 21. Again, we can read in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, someone's interpretation. There's some disagreements about in different translations of what that means. Some verses, or some versions rather, have uh, the prophet's own interpretation or understanding. Others have any private interpretation. Here we read in the ESV, uh, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's interpretation. What is Peter trying to say here? Um, some hold that verses 20 and 21 are just merely restatements of each other. That interpretation means origination and that God's word doesn't originate with the prophet. But I believe there are actually two separate thoughts here. I believe what he is doing here in verse 20 is actually um, countering the false teachers. These false teachers are ones who interpreted God, God's word, scripture, their own way, a private interpretation. And what Peter is saying here is, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever made, or rather was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see that the prophecy in verse 20 was not man-made, but God-made. God breathed, in fact. And the interpretation of that word is not a matter, is um, also not a man-made thing, but it's also of God. You don't interpret God's word and choose what it means to you. There is one authoritative interpretation of God's word, and that one authoritative interpretation is the one given by the apostles. Our third point, what is the result of this false teaching? We've seen that these teachers, these false teachers come in. They're denying anyone else's authority. They're rejecting the apostles' teaching. They're rejecting the Old Testament. What's the result of their teaching? This is our third point, first part there. The first thing that we learn is that the false teachers will lead others astray. If we go back to chapter 2, verse 2, we read that many will follow in their sensuality. 
chapter 2, verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. Chapter 2, verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. You notice in verses 14 and 18, we read about that word entice. Uh, the word there is a picture of fishermen who attempt to lure and catch fish with bait. Now you can imagine Peter, as a former fisherman, who through Christ became a fisher of men, who is now a shepherd of God's sheep, sees what's happening here and he is distraught in his soul. He sees that these are false shepherds who are leading the sheep away from their true shepherd. Who are they enticing? We see that these are uh, those who are unsteady, those who lack a firm foundation. We read that these are those who are uh, barely escaping, that might be recently escaping. They just are newly professed Christians. They lack the maturity and the knowledge, and these false teachers see them and they prey upon them. So these false teachers will lead others astray. Why they lead others astray? It's for, because they are led astray themselves. We read that in chapter 2, verse 15. They are forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. Instead of, instead of following the shepherd of the sheep, they have followed the false prophet Balaam. Chapter 2, verse 20. They had escaped the defilements of the world, but are again entangled in them and overcome. They have returned from where they began. They are lost and so cannot lead others. Chapter 2, verse 21. They were on the way of righteousness, but have now turned back. And we see who they themselves are led by in chapter 3, verse 3. What do we read there? Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So they're not following Christ, they're following their own sinful desires. And here I think it's good for us to pause for a few moments and consider that what we're reading and what we're doing right now is not an academic exercise. It's not something done in the abstract. That we talk about doctrine and something that we can mentally assent to and not think it has an effect on our lives. Because we see what these false teachers believed, what they enticed these new believers or others to believe, actually had a detrimental effect on their lives. So let's not be deceived into thinking that what we think, what we consume, what we believe will not have a resulting effect on our lives and our actions. It's not that we have a doctrine, we have a moral life. Our doctrine leads to our moral life. Our last point here. These false teachers are not Christians at all. Despite what we talked about in our first point, despite the language that Peter described them in, those who had talked about uh, a master who bought them, those who had, um, had escaped the defilements of the world, those who had some knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those who had received the holy commandment, these are not Christians. Let's 
look at other ways that Peter describes these false teachers. Chapter 2, verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Chapter 2, verse 9, the unrighteous are kept under punishment until the day of judgment. So he says that they have condemnation coming. They are unrighteous. Chapter 2, verse 12, like irrational animals and creatures of instinct, born to be caught, they will be destroyed in their destruction. Chapter 2, verse 14, they are accursed children. Chapter 2, verse 19, they are slaves of corruption. Perhaps where it comes most into focus for us that these false teachers, not Christians, are is in verse 22 of chapter 2. There we read, What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What does this tell us? What do these proverbs tell us? That the character of these false teachers has not been changed. While their outward appearance and their behavior has been modified for a time, while they can speak the language of Christianity, it is all outward. In 1 John 2, verse 18, we read there, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, for they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what has God made plain about these false teachers? Well, there's many things I think we could say, but I think the chief thing that we can say, how these false teachers have made it plain that they are not of us, is that they do not submit to and follow God's word. They do not pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And what does he say there? He says in verse 3, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. May that be, even for ourselves this morning, a litmus test for us. Are we paying attention to God's word? Are we following God's word? God's word goes out and it has its perfect intended effect that it has. For those who are his sheep, we hear his voice and we're called back to him. Those who are not his sheep do not hear his voice. So if you're hearing these words right now, the voice of God through his word, and you are his, it is calling to you right now. And I pray, if it is not calling to you right now, that God may open your heart to understand his word, that he may grant you repentance that leads to salvation. In closing here, how do we guard ourselves against the false teachers? 
These who have come in and they deceive us, these who would lead, lead us away from effective and fruitful living in the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ, well, we would do what Peter says here in chapter 3, that we would stir up our sincere minds daily, hourly, minute by minute. And the question is, well, how do we stir up our sincere minds? How is that done? The first thing we do is we remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets. This comes from chapter 3, verse 2. We remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets. This is what we find in God's word. What did the Holy Prophets say? They say that Jesus is returning. God will judge the unrighteous and rescue the godly. Lord willing, that's what we'll be talking about next week. So we remember the utter reliability and truthfulness of God's word. Further, we remember that the Old, uh, the Old Testament prophets predicted that there will be false teachers and scoffers. They will be trying to entice us away from righteous living through promises of freedom. What they will say will sound plausible, but it is contrary to God's word. So we are on guard for these things. We know that this is a real threat to us. Secondly, how do we stir up our sincere minds? We remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This also comes from chapter 3, verse 2. We remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The commands of the apostles, how we ought to live, what we read about in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, are actually Jesus speaking through the apostles. So we are not like the false teachers who reject the apostles' teaching, but we pay, we pay attention to what they said. And if we do these things, it is my prayer that we will be like the early church that we read about in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. There we can read, so those who received his word, it was actually Peter's word, the gospel being presented. So those who received his word were baptized, in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. May it be so with us. Pray with me. Father God, we have heard your word, and I pray it is your word that has been exalted here in this short time that we've had. But we know that hearing your word is not enough, that in fact we ought to be doers of your word. If we are hearers only, we deceive ourselves. For if we hear your word and we are not a doer, we are like those who look intently at our natural face in the mirror. We look at ourselves, we go away, and at once forget what we were like. I pray, God, that we would be those who look into your perfect law, your law of liberty, of true freedom, and persevering doing so, that we would not be hearers who forget, but doers who acts, who act, knowing that we will be blessed in our doing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.